Uh, we don't have a, a uh, slide, so open your Bibles up to 2 Peter chapter 3. We are finishing up this amazing little letter, and we'll be reading verses 11 through 18. 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction." You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Dear Father, we turn our time this morning over to You and we we ask Your Spirit to work in our hearts through uh, this marvelous Word that You would, Lord, You would show us how we are to live, what kind of people we are to be as those who know what's coming. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We all know that there are three kinds of people in the world, right? Those who are good at math and those who aren't. I'm sorry, the kid in me still loves that joke after 40 years. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that there are two kinds of Christians. Those who live primarily on the basis of their experience and those who live primarily on the basis of their expectation. Now that's something of an oversimplification. There's more to it than that. But I want you to think in terms of focus, in terms of emphasis, If you are a child of God and your thoughts and decisions and actions today are determined mostly by what you have personally experienced in your life before and since you came to Christ, you're certainly like a whole lot of other believers. And if you've been a believer for a while, you have no doubt accumulated some experiences that have demonstrated God's faithfulness to you as His child. You've seen His hand of provision and protection in your own life and in the lives of your fellow saints. And that experience gives you some valuable data points for living a life of faith now. But if your experience is the primary basis for knowing how to live, you're going to get a lot of things wrong. Along with those episodes of provision and protection, 
you'll remember many instances of suffering, of pain, of serious disappointment, even of betrayal by family members or friends. You'll remember grievous injustices that have taken a toll on you and on the whole community of mankind. Your frame of reference when you think about how God deals with such things will be all about short-term deliverances and unfinished blessings because that's what you've seen. Your prayer life will be overwhelmingly focused on asking God for more of those short-term deliverances and unfinished blessings. You'll always be dreading that next major struggle and praying for deliverance from the current struggle. Your thought life, your prayer life, your counsel to others, and your actions toward others will add up to a very weak and watered-down approximation of the life that God actually intends for you as His child. But it turns out that there's another basis for knowing how to live now that matches up much better with reality. And that basis is God-informed expectation of what's coming. Not what we've already seen. Not what we've already experienced. But what's coming. See, it's not fundamentally our experience within this little subatomic dot at the beginning of our eternal lives that tells us how to live now. It's not even the sum total of all the experience of all the people of God in all of history. It's not even our remembrance of the death and resurrection of Christ. It's our eager anticipation of the eternal consequence of Christ's death and resurrection. It's minds and hearts that are fixated on the return of our Savior to judge the world, end the curse, and bring us into the new heavens and the new earth to dwell with Him forever. It's a laser-like focus on the promise of Christ's soon return and of the establishment of His kingdom as the only kingdom. In a nutshell, if your attention day by day is fixed on what's coming, you'll know how to live now. And if it's not, you won't. You just won't. That's Peter's exhortation to us here at the end of the last letter that he wrote to the churches soon before his own physical death. And the exhortation is really, really important. So let's take a good look at it. First, let's make sure we have a reasonably clear understanding of what, in fact, is coming. In the first part of chapter 3 that we looked at last week, Peter told us without pulling any punches that a day of cataclysmic worldwide judgment is certainly coming. And as proof that the true God, the God of the Bible, actually does that kind of thing, Peter pointed to the previous judgment that destroyed the entire world by water in the days of Noah. Then in verse 7, he got more specific about the future worldwide judgment. He said, 
But the present heavens and earth are, by His Word, being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Then he got even more specific about that coming judgment in verse 10. He said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, in the concluding verses of the letter, Peter speaks a third time of this same coming worldwide judgment. But this time, he poses a critically important question. And it's a question that demands an answer from every single one of us. It's a question that cuts through all the clutter and all the noise. And it goes right to the heart of why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing while we're here. Verse 11, he says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Then as he lays out God's answer to that question, what sort of people must you be? He adds yet another element to that for which we are eagerly waiting The very next verse, verse 13, he says, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's saying, since we know that that judgment and that deliverance are both coming, what kind of people must we be here and now? Before we dive into his answer, let's again make sure we're clear about the premise on which it's based. I want to consider for just a few minutes what Peter's saying here about this coming judgment and this coming deliverance. The first thing to note about the prophesied judgment is that it will subject God's entire creation to intense fire. Fire that will burn up the earth and all its works. In other words, if you set unredeemed mankind aside for just a moment, knowing that God has a special judgment in store for them, every other material thing that is presently under the curse will be burned up, or better, burned away, with the result that the earth will be in effect laid bare. Many theologians argue that this is figurative language that's intended to convey some kind of severe and all-encompassing judgment, but that it does not mean God will actually use fire to accomplish that judgment. You can call me simple-minded, a lot of other people have, but when Peter points back to a real flood involving real water that covered the real earth, then I tend to think that when he now talks about a coming judgment by fire that will strip the earth bare and cause the heavenly objects to pass away, he probably means real fire. Not a campfire. The intense, all-consuming fire that comes from the holy presence of God. The Old Testament actually talks about that a lot. If you want to see a micro-scale preview of what that looks like, 
Go read again about the fire and brimstone that God rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing both of those cities to ash. We could spend a couple of hours looking at all that the Bible says about the holy fire of Yahweh. But we need to press on. Now, granted, there are numerous references in both Testaments to God's refining fire. To that furnace of affliction that God uses to refine, to purify His covenant people. And those references are certainly figurative, not literal. But overwhelmingly, when the Bible speaks of fire issuing forth from the presence of God to execute destructive judgment, it's talking about real fire. Real, exceedingly hot, all-consuming fire. The word for elements that Peter uses here in verses 10 and 12 is the very same word that the Apostle Paul uses repeatedly to refer to the works and traditions of men, especially the works of man-centered religion and pretended righteousness. Look at Galatians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 2. The word is used twice in each of those chapters referring to the elementary things. I believe that when Peter says here that these elementary things will be literally loosed with intense heat, he's referring to the same things that he means when he says all of the earth's works will be burned up. I believe he's saying everything created by fallen men on this earth under the curse, along with every other vestige of the curse, all the mold and mildew and bacteria and viruses and decaying plants and animals will be both figuratively and literally burned away with intense heat. Loosed from the earth with the result that the earth will be stripped bare of every vestige of the curse. Cleansed. Purged. Ready for God's glorious work of reconstruction. Peter also says that the things in the heavens will pass away with a roar. I don't know what's going to happen exactly with the heavens because there's not a lot of detail. But we know from Isaiah 60 and from Revelation 21 and 22 that the glory of the Lord will be all the light in the new Jerusalem and it will be the only light in the new Jerusalem. And I believe based on a passage that was read in the worship just this morning, Ephesians 1.10, it speaks of the summing up, the gathering together of all things both in the heavens and on the earth into one in Christ. I don't think that the heavens and the earth are going to be separate things. I don't think it will be the new heavens up there and the new earth down here. I think it's going to be one thing. And by the way, the dimensions of the city of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 are 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. You ever seen a city like that? I want to be clear about this next point. If you need more detail on it, you can go to our website, Check out the series we did a while back about the new heavens and the new earth. But this is the essential point that I want to reiterate here. The destruction to which Peter is pointing in this passage and to which many faithful prophets before him pointed is not an annihilation of the earth. Any more than God's eternal judgment against unrepentant sinners is a complete annihilation of those unrepentant sinners. The word for destroy that Peter uses 
here in reference to the coming judgment of the whole cosmos by fire is the very same word that he used in reference to the previous worldwide judgment by water. So let me ask you a question. Did that destructive judgment in the days of Noah annihilate the earth? No, but God calls it a complete destruction of the earth. See, he had a target for that destruction. And that target was sin and sinners and all the works of sin and sinners. The answer to another question helps clarify the answer to that first one. When Peter refers in verse 7 of this chapter to the coming destruction of ungodly men, in the same breath as his reference to the coming fiery destruction of the present heavens and earth, is he saying that God will annihilate those ungodly men, that they'll just cease to exist? No, he's not. That would deny a whole bunch of what the Bible teaches about God's judgment of the lost. Their judgment will be eternal. They won't cease to exist. They will exist in hell forever. Along with Satan and all the angels who followed him in rebellion against the Most High God. So why then won't God's judgment of the physical creation be ongoing and eternal? Well, because creation didn't sin. We did. God's judgment of creation will be a purging, a cleansing to prepare that creation for a whole new state of affairs. Creation was cursed because the image bearers and agents of God who were created to exercise dominion over it rebelled against our Creator. The judgment of ungodly men and the full redemption of all who are protected from that judgment only by the blood of Jesus Christ is going to bring about the marvelous redemption and renewal of God's physical creation. This earth. Read Romans 8 for more on that. By the way, regardless of what a particular theologian's name is or how many biblically sound things he's ever had to say, any preacher or teacher or author who declares that the judgment God has in store for unrepentant sinners is annihilation, an end to their existence, rather than an eternity of existence away from the presence of God and from the glory of His power in a place of everlasting torment, that person isn't merely declaring Jesus to be prone to gross exaggeration. He's declaring Jesus to be a liar. And he's preaching rank, gospel-denying heresy. You cannot say that you trust Jesus as your Savior if you're disagreeing with Him about what He has saved you from. If God has given theologians a carte blanche to define hell in whatever terms they find palatable, then everything that His Word tells us about heaven is no more trustworthy than fanciful fiction. But neither of those things is true. God's Word is true. Let God be true, though every man be found a liar. 
All right, so under the category of what's coming, we've mentioned the fiery purging of every remnant of the curse from God's creation, along with the eternal, unending destruction of ungodly men. Now for the pleasant part. The new heavens and the new earth. The home of righteousness. The promise of the new heavens and the new earth isn't new with Peter. Isaiah spoke of the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 65 and 66. And the new Jerusalem as the place in which God's people will dwell forever with their Messiah, their just and righteous King, is very often repeated. That promise is very often repeated in the Old Testament. Now again, I won't take time to fully develop the biblical case for this next statement, but I want to reiterate the point that the location of the new earth, the new Jerusalem, will be here on a cleansed and perfectly renewed earth. The new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God with His people that's promised over and over in the Old Testament will be the old Jerusalem made perfectly new. It'll look radically different than its old cursed precursor, just like Patrick Emmert will, just like you will if you belong to Christ. But it will be the old Jerusalem made perfectly and pristinely new. Peter says here in verse 13, it will be the home of righteousness. That's a loaded promise. Revelation 21.27 says, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you belong to Christ, that is a marvelous promise. Since Peter talks in this chapter about God's coming judgment of ungodly men, why then does he not say anything about God's coming deliverance of men made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is he does. But he does so by talking about the place. The more time you spend looking at all that the Bible says about the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, the more clearly you will see that the point of the place is the presence of the person. Or to put it more fully and to add even two more instances of the letter P, the point of the place is the presence of the person with his people. Go look at Zechariah chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 8, Isaiah 60 and 61, Jeremiah 31 and 33, Ezekiel 36 and 37, passage after passage after passage that speak of the place in which Yahweh will dwell with His people forever. The point of the place is the presence of the person with His people. Emmanuel, God with us. Since that's what's coming, beloved, what kind of people must we be? That's Peter's piercing question to every one of us. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, since you look for these things, both the final judgment and the final perfect salvation, what sort of people ought you to be? 
as I was thinking through the passage, uh, I was plotting to steal Francis Schaeffer's old title, How Shall We Then Live? With attribution, of course. But then I realized that that's not exactly the same question that Peter is setting before us here. He talked a whole lot in his first letter about how we must live so that our lives will give credibility and honor to our proclamation of Christ. But here he goes beyond behavior. He goes to the heart of every believer. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, as you go about living a life of holy conduct and godliness, which I talked about in my first letter, (laughs) what kind of people are you to be? His answer confirms that he's looking much deeper than our outward conduct. He's going to our motivation for godly conduct. What compels us to live godly lives. And that's a very important issue, isn't it? Don't we want to know how to be motivated to live the lives that God has commanded us to live? What kind of people must we be? Answer, expectant people. People whose eyes are fixed like laser beams on the coming fulfillment of God's precious and magnificent promises. People eagerly awaiting all that God has promised. All that He has laid up for those who love Him. Three times in three verses, verses 12 to 14, Peter uses the words looking for. We are to be people (laughs) looking for something. Filled with anticipation. People whose minds and hearts are always looking forward. Not looking back except at the cross. Not looking around because there's nothing there. People so obsessively fixated on our future reality that that fixation absolutely defines how we live now. Not only does Peter say we must be looking for the coming of the day of the Lord, he says we must be hastening the coming day of the Lord. (laughs) The word hastening means hurrying. So how is it that we, you and I, can hasten the coming of Jesus Christ to judge sin and sinners and to make all things new, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, I don't believe Peter's saying we get to change God's timetable for the return of Jesus. But I absolutely believe he's saying we get to participate in God's timetable for the return of Jesus. Like so much of what we find in the Bible, this all goes back to God's design for human agency that's introduced on the very first page of your Bible in Genesis 1. We were created to act as image bearers and agents, representatives of God exercising dominion over His creation. The fall, the first sin of Adam, brought about the death of man's spirit, man's relationship with God. And that same fall ensured that we would not act willingly as his agents, but would instead act as agents of self. But the death of Jesus in our place and his glorious resurrection accomplished the death of that spiritual death for all who trust in him. Our Lord is now creating a people for His own possession. 
zealous to be excellent image bearers who show Him off well. Agents who do His bidding, His work and His creation with all our hearts. The way that you and I hasten the coming of the day of the Lord is by serving joyfully and faithfully as His agents to bring about the end of His reason for delaying that coming day. His agents to bring about the reason to bring about the end of His reason for delaying that day. And how do we do that? What's that reason? Why is it that God is delaying the imminent return of Jesus to judge sin and sinners and to make all things new? Well, Peter just told us in the passage we looked at last week, right? Verse 9, he said, God is not slow about His promise as some measure slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now in verse 15, he commands us to regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. The timing of the Lord's return has been carefully orchestrated by God to provide the time necessary for all of His chosen ones to come to faith in Jesus And it's provided the necessary time for God to use us to accomplish that. See, we're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. We're not sovereign. We're just agents. So for agents to pull that off takes a little time. God could have done all of that without our involvement, but He chose to do it through His image bearers. His redeemed image bearers. So how then... Do we act as God's agents to ensure that His timetable for Christ's return is fulfilled by doing the very thing that He left us here to do? Proclaiming and adorning the gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Proclaiming the excellencies of Him who brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light while we are keeping our behavior excellent among unbelievers. So that as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, even though they slander us now as evildoers, they may on account of our good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. You know what the day of visitation is? It's what we're looking for. It's what we're waiting for. God alone knows the day and the hour of Christ's return, but beloved, every soul that comes to faith in Jesus Christ brings us all closer to that glorious day and God has made us His ambassadors to bring that about. As is typical throughout the New Testament epistles, especially the epistles of Peter, he has more to say here about how we adorn the Gospel than he does about how we proclaim it. In verse 14, he exhorts us to peace and godliness. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. The word for peace here is the New Testament equivalent of the great Hebrew word shalom. It means pervasive well-being in all relationships and in every aspect of life. Well-being that comes entirely through the well-being of our relationship with God. Peace, the peace that Jesus said the world doesn't give to you, but He gives to you, 
It's a very different thing. It's way better than anything the world can give. And it comes through relationship with God alone. The word spotless and blameless in chapter 3, verse 14 are actually the, the exact opposites of the words stains and blemishes that Peter used to describe false teachers in chapter 2, verse 13. You know how you negate a Greek word? You put an A in front of it. And that's what Peter did here. He took those two words, stains and blemishes, and he put an A in front of each of them. And he said, we are to be unstained and unblemished. We use UN. Greek uses A. The words be diligent to show up, be diligent to <laughs> show up over and over in Peter's letters just as they do in Paul's. And when those words show up, be diligent to, they mean what they say. Put your whole heart into this. This is important. These words anticipate that you will encounter opposition. They anticipate the, that the assignment will be hard and that it will demand much of you. But if you separate the exhortation from its context, you know what your old nature will do? Your old nature will pounce at the opportunity to turn the exhortation into a dry, passionless, burdensome effort. It will rip the heart right out of the exhortation if you don't look at the context. Here's the context. <laughs> Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. As redeemed citizens of God's unshakable kingdom, as those who have been graciously and mercifully spared from the terrible judgment that we so completely deserve, as those who know that we will dwell forever with our Savior and Master in the new heavens and the new earth together with all the redeemed of God. Peter says, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. If you and I are truly looking for the coming of the day of the Lord, if we're anticipating the cataclysmic judgment of all creation the eternal judgment of unredeemed sinners, if we're fixing our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will never be satisfied to live today as we lived yesterday or the day before or the day before that. We won't need anyone to twist our arms, beloved. Even when we stumble badly, we will continue pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in another great passage that calls us to be always watching and waiting for that glorious day of His return. Titus 2, verses 11-14. to 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly, worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Grace instructs us to live godly lives. And then he says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. (laughs) If we're actually looking for Christ's glorious return, we will never cease to move in his direction when it comes to how we're living here and now. Even when we stumble. Jesus gave his life to redeem us from every lawless deed, to make us his people zealous for good deeds, not coerced kicking and screaming into good deeds. That's how some people paint the Christian life. That's not the Christian life, beloved. Zealous for good deeds. See, it's God's amazing grace toward us in Jesus Christ. It's knowing what lies ahead for us because of that grace that compels us. It drives us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Today. There's no arm twisting required. Just watching and waiting and looking, anticipating eagerly. We can do that. One of the most subtle and most common distortions of the true gospel of Jesus Christ is this very popular declaration. God accepts you as you are. And don't get me wrong, we are to be proclaiming the free gift of justification and eternal life in Jesus Christ without apology, without any qualification that would make it less than absolutely free. It's a gift, not a bargain. The gospel is not a call to lost men to make some kind of a deal with God where we give Him something and then He gives us something better. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is the gift of resurrection life given by God to dead people. But to say in our gospel message, God accepts you as you are, is a terrible distortion of that glorious gift. If God accepted lost sinners into His spiritual household as they are, He'd have a house full of dead people. Wouldn't that be fun? The gospel is a message, beloved, the gospel is a message of renewal accomplished by God, not sameness approved by God. The gift of life in Jesus Christ is absolutely free. It's undeserved. It's impossible for us to earn. But the one who receives that gift by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is from that moment and into eternity owned by God. That doesn't change the freeness of the gift. It simply acknowledges that it's a gift that changes us. Let's make sure that's in our gospel message. Knowing the glorious destiny that Jesus has laid up for us in His presence forever at the cost of His own life blood compels us to be a people of holy conduct and godliness, diligent to be found by Him in peace, unstained and unblemished by this world. That same forward-looking focus moves us to be on guard always against the error of unprincipled men, verse 17. On guard against falling from our own steadfastness. 
our motivation to fortify our minds and hearts with the Spirit-given, Spirit-illumined, Spirit-empowered Word of God that protects us from falsehood, that motivation is our constant awareness of what's coming. In the last verse of this great epistle, Peter comes back to the same overriding goal that he introduced at the beginning of the letter, that grace may be multiplied in us, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The goal of his first letter, explicit goal, was that we would know the true grace of God and we would stand firm in that grace. The goal of the second epistle is that we'll grow up in that same true grace of God through the intimate personal knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, is your life now, today, built on your experience or on your expectation? Are you looking back and looking around or are you looking forward? Are you preoccupied from the time you wake up in the morning until the time you finally drift off to sleep at night with all the stresses and struggles and fears and temptations of this very temporary mortal life? Or do you get out of bed geared up, ready for action, sober in spirit, with your hope fixed completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? It's 1 Peter 1.13. Are your concerns and decisions about finances and time commitments and life determined by your living hope of the soon return of Jesus Christ to judge all ungodliness and to make all things new? Or is that living hope so far from your awareness that it has no real impact? on how you actually live today. God is telling you and me what kind of people we must be. He's not asking. He's not suggesting. (laughs) He loves us far too much to hand the reins back to us and, and ask us how we think this life is supposed to work. He is laying out before us His precious and magnificent promises and He's telling us straight up how those promises will change our whole grid our whole worldview, and most importantly, our whole way of living if we spend our lives watching and eagerly waiting for their fulfillment. It's all about where we're looking. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'm about to close, but in 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul presents God's marvelous promise to every believer of our coming bodily resurrection after the pattern of our of the first fruits, Jesus He then connects that promise of resurrection with the impact of that promise on our lives now. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How do we know that our labor is not in vain? Because we know what's coming. The word toil... Labor there is a word that speaks of hardship. 
Beloved, Jesus knows your toil in this life for His sake. He knows better than anyone the poverty of spirit that comes with self-denial in order to display His character. He knows the damage to relationships that you experience for proclaiming Him to be the way, the truth, and the life. He knows the opposition and ridicule and accusations that you suffer at the hands of godless people when you turn your back on the self-indulgent excesses of this world that they so love and you do so purely for His sake. He knows the abuses that you suffer for submitting to unjust authorities in order to follow Him and to do as He did. He knows the financial hardship that you experience now because you're investing in the enduring kingdom that's coming instead of the kingdom of this earth that will soon burn away. And He's telling you that these things are not in vain because His promises are true. Jesus is coming. All of this will be judged. It will pass away. He will make all things new. He's coming again and He's bringing His kingdom with Him. You know, the one that He told His disciples He had to leave to prepare? He's bringing that place with Him. And He will be there. He will be there. He will dwell forever among us. He will be our God, our inheritance, our very great reward, our eternal treasure. And we will be His people, His treasure, His bride forever. Beloved, there's your motivation to shine brightly for Him until the coming of that glorious day. No arm twisting required. Dear Father, grow us up daily in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we continue looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. We ask this in His precious name. Amen.